Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Welcome to the podcast mini-series, On the Neuro, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Thanks for joining us for our first episode, Tools and Resources for Cognitive Communication Interventions After a Concussion. This audio course is offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. I am your host, Dr. Tabia Pope, President and CEO of Head to Speech Incorporated. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of this podcast and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. My non-financial disclosures are that I am the founder, president, and CEO of Head to Speech Incorporated, a nonprofit organization. My guest, Danielle Hyde, receives an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode, and no relevant non-financial relationships exist. And now, here is a little bit about my guest today, Danielle Hyde. Danielle Hyde is the co-owner of Neural Connections, a private practice that provides communication, cognitive, and swallowing services, mainly for adults after concussion, brain injury, and stroke. Danielle has been working with adults with neurological impairments since graduating with her master's in speech-language pathology in 2012. Through her experience in a variety of medical settings, Danielle's true passion lies in the community reintegration of adults with cognitive and communication difficulties. Danielle believes in a collaborative approach by supporting her clients in creating and achieving their personal goals. Danielle is dedicated to helping her clients gain independence, reduce their frustrations, successfully return to work or school, and return to the activities and social interactions that that are important to them. Danielle is a member of good standing with the College of Audiologists and Speech-Language Pathologists, a nationally certified member of Speech, Language, and Audiology Canada, and a member of the Ontario Association of Speech-Language Pathologists and Audiologists. She also holds her Certificate of Clinical Competence with the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. Welcome, Danielle. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for coming on the On the Neuro podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tavia. Tabia. Yes. <laughs> yes. So On the Neuro podcast features guests who are either emerging, expanding, or influencing within the neural community as well as those who can speak on topics related to brain injury, sports concussion management, and overall brain health. So I'm so happy that you are on the podcast today because you are definitely fit into that of being in the neural community and providing such a great resource for everyone. 
So I want to just ask you, so which category do you think describes you the most and why? Or do you fit into the emerging, expanding, or influencing category? I mean, as, you know, a lifelong learner, I think I always feel like I'm expanding and I have focused a lot of my practice in the last few years on concussion recovery and management. And so I I have gotten a lot of experience and knowledge in that area. And I do hope to not influence, but educate certainly, you know, other SLPs or um, other healthcare practitioners about what our role is. So I'm going to say somewhere in between, but you know, this is certainly an area that's, that I'm, I'm very passionate about. I mean, Daniel, I, I view you as an influencer as well. You know, I truly love your Instagram, you know, Instagram account, neural.connections, and you give so much great content to your, you know, your audience. And so what's one thing you've learned as you have ventured, I guess, going from the expanding to influencer and really just coming into your own as an influencer? So what's one thing that you've learned as you've made that transition? I mean, it certainly wasn't expected to kind of, I I mentioned, you know, I didn't even want to start Instagram. I didn't even, it seemed like this whole thing that I, I had knew nothing about, but the more that I, I started it and all of these, the knowledge in these areas and these strategies really even provided clarity for myself and some of the graphics I even started incorporating in, into my sessions as as visuals and, and creating other PDFs. And I think that has been helpful. So you also have a private it's practice. Just, Do you find that when you became a private practice owner, that it was essential for you to, you know, make that transition into having more of a presence on social media? Yeah. And I didn't know. I really didn't know if that was necessary. And I still don't know if that's necessary. But my goal was really to connect with other healthcare practitioners in the concussion field. And I had no idea the huge community of concussion practitioners and concussion survivors that were on there. And I have learned so much from them and kind of gives me more well-rounded and learning from others, as well as, you know, sharing what our role is unexpected, but I think that it's been, it's, it has been really helpful. And I hope, you know, to continue to provide resources or share information and, you know, create more visibility of our, of our role. Yes. Well, thank you so much for that. And I do want to talk about your private practice because I think that you have such great tools and resources that you're going to provide us with this evening. And so what are some of the tools and resources that you've used in your private practice or, you know, uh, throughout your career for assessing and treating adults after concussion and brain injury? So, of course, we have this incredible push for person-centered and functional care. And now the insurance piece is a little different in the States. And and I think there's still the requirement of some sort of standardized or formal measures, um, which is part of my assessment procedures for concussion or cognitive communication, the favors, sort of a verbal fluency, um, some other sort of formal measures that I use. But 
the case history, the, the interview questions, the questionnaires, the self-rating forms, those are really critical because you know, our standard measures may not always reveal something. Um, for some, you know, really high performers, they might score, you know, 20th percentile and, and okay, that's, you know, within normal limits, but for them, like that's not normal. Um, and, you know, typically we don't have pre-injury measures, so we have nothing, we don't have that to compare to. So really finding out what their struggles are is so critical in this population. And those self-rating forms and questionnaires are a necessary part of the assessment procedure. If you could describe that process of utilizing when you receive you know, a referral for your, for your patients, how do you mm-hmm. choose which uh, tools and resources that you're going to use for that client? And, you know, kind of describe your your day with your clients as well so we can get a picture, a better picture of what it's like to really work and treat adults after concussion. Sure. So as a private practitioner, I mean, I have a a partner who's also speech pathologist, um, but we're a small business. So we're doing all of the intakes and consults. So that gives us We're actually talking with the client before setting up the assessment, and we're getting a pretty clear idea of the struggles that they're having. Part of our intake procedure is to send the CABI, which is the Cognitive Communication Checklist for Acquired Brain Injury, as well as our kind of just typical adult intake form. But that allows us, and sometimes I think even the client, to realize oh yeah, I am having issues in social communication or discourse, or I am having difficulties with decision-making or kind of reading between the lines. I think that the concussion population is typically much more in tune to the difficulties they're having. You know, their insider awareness is greater as you compare to, you know, a moderate or severe traumatic brain injury where that, you know, tends to come up a little bit. Why do you think that is, that they're more in tune than a a moderate to severe traumatic brain injury? Just the severity of the injury, that that awareness piece is something that's pretty typical. You know, having that lack of awareness of those difficulties in that moderate or or severe area, but it, it also can occur in concussion. So I typically give the cabbie and then after the assessment, discussing the difficulties they're having, I sometimes ask a family member or a spouse to also complete the cabbie to kind of see, all right, is everything matching up here or are there some issues that they're not realizing? And I find like, you know, the memory piece people can really pick up on pretty easily or the attention, but sometimes those social communication, you know, perceiving those nonverbal cues, that's when a spouse might be like, yeah, remember that time where, you know, your neighbor, the neighbor was trying to get out and, and you kept talking for 10 more minutes. Right. The perceptions, um, the so, perceptions may be different of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it is helpful to have the perspective of not just the client, but also, you know, a spouse or or a close family member. What are some of your favorite questions when you use the tool, that tool, that the tool that you use for referrals, the CABI, right? So what what are some of the, the favorite questions that you have from that, that you kind of get a lot of good information from? 
You know what? I, I think, so I typically, I don't actually go over it with them necessarily. I send that beforehand and then we'll go over it during the assessment. And it's really open-ended. And, you know, I ask them to describe their day and what part of their day are they struggling with? And a lot of times, you know, again, they can pick up on the, I'm having difficulty with memory. I'm having difficulty with attention. You know, executive function is not really a term that people, the average person knows. Um, So we have to kind of go a little bit deeper into that. But sometimes they don't really realize the communication piece, right? Cognitive communication difficulties, it's the changes in cognitive functioning that are impacting communication. And we're not talking about, you know, basic communication of I need a glass of water, right? But the efficiency with which they are, were able to do a task before, write an email, have a conversation or explain something that they need. And now that takes, you know, three times as long as it did before that efficiency or that effectiveness is impacted. So sometimes that communication is, is they know the cognitive piece, but how that impacts kind of these high level situations or high, you know, complex communication interactions I think as we kind of talk through it, it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, they might be able to pick up word finding. That's a really common one that people will complain of. But, you know, those higher level complex interactions um, might need a little bit more kind of probing from us. So after you give that tool and you compare the perceptions, what happens next in, in your day um, working with that and tr- working with that client or patient and treating them? What happens next? Yeah. So, all right. So we we go over the assessment. Um, typically, at the end of our assessment, we kind of just go over briefly, like what we found um, a little bit of goal planning. Usually goal planning takes a little bit more time. So if we don't have time that our first session, we'll start with goal planning. Um, I may also give a kind of a self-rating questionnaire. There's a, a self-assessment of communication skills that you rate yourself on these different areas. And we can kind of use that as an outcome measure, you know, at the end of a block of treatment. So that's something that's we might do kind of our first session. We do goal planning and something that I have changed in my practice, which from when I started is to try and focus on fewer goals. And, you know, there's so many. Why did, why did you change from, why did you find that to be very important to change? I think for carryover and generalization and, you know, we have, I think there's too much interference when we're working on to, on so many things. And oftentimes, you know, you have a client who comes in and says, okay, I, I want all these things to get better. And we have a long list of things to, to work on. Now, I will say there are some general themes throughout all of our goals. This is our metacognition, our thinking about our thinking and how we're doing, what we're doing well, what we're not doing well. That pretty much is in every goal. So I think there are some common themes that we'll see, but working towards that specific functional goal. Maybe it's, you know, scheduling or maybe it's participating in more social interactions, but there's already a lot of overwhelm 
with this population, right? Like typically they have a lot of other many four, five, six other practitioners that they're seeing. And, you know, I want to be very clear about what we're working on. And I want those strategies to be clear so that they can be implemented and they can be used successfully. And so it seems like fewer goals and, you know, we'll revise them. We may edit them or add, modify them, but fewer at a time rather than, okay, we're going to start with, you know, 20 goals. (laughs) These are all the things that I want to do. So kind of narrowing, narrowing it down a bit and being very clear, like this is what we're working towards. And how do you also work with other professionals and collaborate? Is there, what is your collaboration process if they are seeing other practitioners as well? Yeah, I think probably the closest we practitioner that we work with is the occupational therapist. You know, we want to make sure we're not necessarily overlapping on goals, but we're working on the same sort of strategies and there's adequate carryover um, and we're kind of reinforcing the same thing. So I think that's really important, whether that's on, usually it's getting on the phone. Uh, Sometimes it's an email, but that email is usually, you know, I personally like to kind of just get it done quicker over the phone, have a quick phone call, talk about a client, of course, with their um, consent. You know, I think other practitioners, um, it may be, again, it may be a quick phone call, but I think the closest practitioner or healthcare professional that we work with is probably occupational therapy. Um, you know, we also might communicate with neurooptometry um, if there's some overlap in, you know, their visual disturbances and blurred vision or double vision. And we're working on reading comprehension and we're thinking about what sort of strategies we can implement. So there's some sort of overlap there physiotherapists, um, neurologists. So, you know, vestibular, there's, there's typically quite a large team in that sort of beginning when they're really still experiencing a lot of those symptoms. Danielle, we have a question. Um, We have a question and it says, uh, what does the CABI stand for? Oh, yeah. So the CABI is the, you know, I love it. Uh, (laughs) Cognitive Communication Checklist of acquired brain injury. If you search that, it's by Sheila McDonald and it's available online for free. It's a PDF. This is, it's, it's actually translated into a few different languages as well. And this was, this is a referral tool. So this was created as a referral tool for other healthcare professionals to give to their client with acquired brain injury um, to then, you know, If any of these items are checked off, then a referral to a speech language pathologist is warranted. And then there's a few questions about, you know, issues with hearing, refer to an audiologist, the visual disturbances to a neurooptometrist um, or vision therapist, um, and then writing to OT as well. So it's a free and um, great tool. So I use it in two ways for the referral aspect of it, sharing it with other healthcare practitioners, but also kind of in that consultation before we get into our assessment, these are the areas that we're having difficulty with. So you might see, wow, all everything in executive functioning is checked off. So we definitely have to look at that. You know, we might do the favors and then we might do an executive functioning questionnaire. 
And again, like we can use that as well as if a spouse or a family member goes through it, they can, we can also compare and see is, is it the same? Are they checking off things that, you know, maybe the client didn't really realize they were having issues with. Is there any other assessments that you rave about that you love in with using with the concussion and brain injury population? I don't think we have a lot of great tests. We don't have a lot of tests that are really sensitive. Um, I think the favors is sensitive. I think verbal fluency, like the FAS and animal naming is sensitive. But a lot of our, you know, the SCAT, um, SCAT B and the uh, R bands, like there are some components that are good, some that are not. There's no one assessment that is for concussion, unfortunately. So we have to look at these different areas. So I might use the discourse comprehension test um, for auditory comprehension, but there's there's no one test, unfortunately. And I think, you know, we might hopefully do a better job um, and get some better testing, some more set that's really sensitive. Like I said, it's not it's not uncommon to come back with sort of some of these like normal scores and the person be like, I'm having so much trouble in my real life. So with special rates for all groups of five or more, along with our free student accounts, speechtherapypd.com continues to be the fastest growing CE provider. If you'd like this podcast and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Simply enter the word SLP learn for $20 off. So this leads to my next question was, what are some innovative approaches that we can really utilize or that you've utilized in this population with concussion care and cognitive communication? Because in this area, we have to be innovative. We have to think of some tools that um, in assessments in, in order to be innovative because of the there isn't one assessment tool like you said so what are some innovative approaches that you're using that stands apart in your private practice and that you want to let other speech pathologists know you know how to be innovative in this area that's an interesting question for me because i feel like when we say innovative we think of you know something that's never been done and and oftentimes in our world like that's related to technology um but i think maybe a, a word i might use instead is 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 creative <laughs> because as my practice as i kind of get into it a little bit more and i get more experience i feel like i have to be more creative in the tasks that we do the activities that we do because it is so dependent on the person that we're treating. You know, we're trying to do functional activities, but what does that mean? <laughs> like, what does that mean for a person who's trying to go back to work? Well, it is a lot of role-playing and simulations, which is something I don't think I did, you know, in the beginning of my career. But you kind of have to embrace that um, for me, it does not come naturally. <laughs> and I feel like I have to kind of come up with these, uh, along with the client, come up with these 
you know, likely or potential scenarios that may happen in their workplace. Or if they tell me, you know, they have a colleague who's really nosy and asks all these questions about, you know, the difficulties they're having, then we kind of have to role play that. Um, in a way, I feel like, you know, we're kind of going back to basics because we're not, I'm not really incorporating a lot of technology. It's really about breaking down the tasks, the activities that they have to do, and then simulating those or trying to do, you know, in real life, um, pre-pandemic, I haven't really gotten back to it. A lot of my clients are still virtual, but I used to go to coffee shops and restaurants and the library with clients or um, even went to a museum once. So trying to actually go into those real life situations um, where they have these external distractions that we know, you know, the auditory sensitivities or the visual disturbances or dizziness, those things are common. That's a reality. They have to have good conversation skills in these situations. Maybe they have people walking by and they're distracted by that. So trying to simulate those real life you know, activities or conversations as best we can. So I think it takes some creativity and you kind of have to practice doing it. And um, really, like I said, you have to break down like what are the actual tasks or what types of conversation do you need to have when you return to work or you return to school? Um, and so, you know, you might take on a certain character or, you know, maybe you're an angry customer and that's the reality of what they're going back to. So you have to play that role. Um, so a lot of creativity and kind of going out, at least for me, it was going out of my comfort zone. Um, and it, it takes practice. And I know that you also utilize your creativity on neural.connections on your social media platform as well. And I want to talk about this because I think it's one of the tools and resources that you may also be using to increase your referrals for concussion management. So can you talk a little bit about any tools or any other tools that we haven't talked about that you use for um, increasing your referrals and you know how you're utilizing your social media platform with your content to increase those referrals? Right. I mean, I think anyone who works with people with concussion, when they finally find you, <laughs> it's one of a couple of things. So they either say, you know, they knew the role of the speech pathologist and they've been trying to find someone who knows concussion management um, specifically. Maybe they saw a general, generalist SLP before who didn't really have the experience or not like, you know, knowledge in cognitive communication. Um, so they found you. That's kind of one sort of typical client I see. Um, then I have the where have you been for two years? You know, I had my concussion two years ago. I had no idea what that SLPs even were involved. You know, we know that, um, you know, not everyone knows our profession as a whole or really to the extent of um, our scope of practice. Um, so it's not just in concussion management that we have to advocate and educate the public and healthcare practitioners. Um, 
but it is not atypical. And I, I, and I hear it again and again, and I know others do as well. Like, where have you been? <laughs> like I could have used this two years ago. Um, so I think that the referrals that come either, they're really searching hard for you or they're like, Whoa, I didn't know that you did this. And, you know, as you explain, you know, these are the things that we treat. Um, it's like, ah, like that's, that's what I need. That's what I need. And and I think when I talk about, um, during an intake and I talk about like, what does it look like? What does our, what does speech therapy look like? Because people have no idea. Um, listen, as an early clinician, I probably didn't know what a session with someone who had a concussion would look like, but you know, we talk about that, those simulations, the role-playing, the strategies. And, um, you know, I think strategies can sometimes have a negative connotation if, you know, we say compensatory strategies and we're like, no, I really want to get back to all of that. I don't want to compensate. I don't need a crutch. Um, and my argument is, well, we use those strategies to engage in that task or that activity or that conversation to be more effective. And the more that you participate in those, you know, real life activities, the better you will get at it. And you may not either that strategy will become automatic and you do not even know that you're using it or you don't need it anymore. And you, but, but to kind of bridge that from you're not doing this at all, we need to get there somehow. Right. So that's what kind of the strategy does. So I, I include that in my consultation and intake. Mm -hmm. So we do have a question. Okay. What strategies, suggestions do you use to work with clients good on good days versus bad days um, for clients that flare up with post-concussion headaches or sensory overload and fatigue and building the stamina as well as the consistency over time? And yeah, I'll let you answer that one before we get to the next one. Yeah, certainly the pacing piece and the energy conservation is so critical in this population. And I know it can feel exhausting for them to constantly be thinking too, not too much, not too little. Um, I think that OTs kind of take reign on this and we support that. And I, I mean, I tell my clients, listen, if it's a really bad day, we're not doing a session. We're not pushing to that point because we know in, I, I've heard of the term, you know, pink symptoms. So they're not quite, you know, red level, but they're starting to come up. You know, we don't want to go past that point where then you now have to, you know, spend the next day or two or longer recovering because you push past that point. So, you know, there's a lot of techniques uh, like the spoon theory and there's lots of pacing techniques. There's um, using, you know, numerical values and such. I mean, if we have an OT, which I typically most of my clients have an OT, they're kind of that is that is something that they're working with that we're, you know, we want to make sure that that's being carried over. Um, what I do work on as it relates to that is advocacy, self-advocacy of setting barriers. We, you know, lots of us are people pleasers and we don't like to say no, we don't like to disappoint people, but we need to hold, they need to hold that boundary because the ramifications, if they don't, is that 
like I said, they might be recovering for several days. So it's important that we help them find those words to advocate for themselves. And again, role-playing, you know, how about if I keep saying, you just keep push a little bit longer, oh, just 30 more minutes. But if you're done, like you need to be, you need to be able to tell your healthcare practitioner, a spouse, a family member, a friend, like I need to, I need to stop. And so we, we, we practice that. I love that when you said find those words, that's truly in role playing to make sure that they know to have those words and on hand to be able to say, stop, I, I, I need to advocate for myself. I need to stop. I love that. Um, and going back to your social media, um, how do you create your content for like, who is your audience, your typical audience? Are you creating your content for speech pathologists in mind or are you, are you creating your content with your client in mind? I think when I first started out, my, my goal was to really connect with other healthcare practitioners. And it's still, it is still a goal, but I kind of, I kind of see sort of three different, I, I see other SLPs, especially if they want to learn more about concussion um, or cognitive communication. Um, or if I come across like a really good strategy and I'm like, oh, does anyone else want to know about this? Probably. We soak up everything that we get. We're like, oh, new resource. Oh, that's a great strategy I'm putting into my toolbox, right? We want to have that. Um, so I think SLPs was something I did not have planned. And that was something that kind of sort of happened organically. Um, it was really healthcare practitioners um, initially. And I didn't know how many people with a concussion would be on Instagram or social media. <laughs> um, and they are because a lot of, we know a concussion can happen to anyone at any time. And um, I think, you know, that's part of why I am so passionate about this population because it, it feels like it could, it could happen to me or you or, or anyone. And I saw myself in a lot of these um, clients. I, I, I certainly get a lot of women uh, between, you know, 20 and 40 or 20 and 45, like that is the bulk of um, my clients. And, you know, they're on Instagram, they're looking for strategies, they're looking for, um, I didn't know, but they are looking for healthcare practitioners. Um, so not what I initially thought, I was just hoping to connect with with other um, concussion practitioners. But um, it's been great. So it's definitely a younger, younger generation versus a stroke population. It's a younger generation. Mm -hmm. So when you are creating your content, um, do you, is there anything that you use in, in general to create the content that, you know, if, if there was another uh, a SLP that's aspiring, you know, to do, uh, to, to utilize, you know, different resources to create their content, to become an influencer, you know, go from the, you know, the merging, expanding to influencer phase, you know, so is there, what do you recommend for that? Or what would you, you know, recommend for that speech pathologist that is looking at your Instagram? is looking at the content that you're creating, what would you, what advice would you give them? So uh, full disclosure, I had help. I had help um, by a social media manager who is also an SLP. I'm like, amazing. Um, it's social mogul. She has helped me 
really, I, I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea where to start. I, I had never heard of Canva. Oh my gosh. I'd never heard of that. I had no idea. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's where I create everything. Um, but I, I had quite a bit of help to kind of even learn anything about it. I, I had never shared a post before. Like I really had knew nothing. Um, so it's been a, it's a, been a whole new world and, um, I didn't expect to like enjoy it as much as I do. Um, it is time consuming. Absolutely. It does take time to create those things, but I, you know, like I mentioned before, I now use some of those visuals or versions of that uh, in therapy, especially I do a lot of virtual therapy. I, you know, have created some of those um, kind of PDFs from those um, graphics. And who doesn't love a visual? I mean, if we're, if we're describing a concept, right, or we're talking about, oh, here are some external memory strategies. Okay show them. <laughs> I learn better that way. Um, so I think that has been really great, unexpected. Um, but I did get quite a bit of help. And, um, you know, now it just kind of, it depends, you know, I create what I'm working on or reading about, um, or, you know, I have a client and I'm like, oh, this is what we did today. And so I'm like, okay, let's, let's talk about this. Or if I'm, you know, reading about something, um, that I didn't know about, um, and maybe others didn't know about. And we do have a question. One of our, uh, attendees is asking, have you ever suspected CTE with any of your patients? Um, I know it can be proved, it can't be proven until death right now. Right. Um, I would say no. I don't work with that many athletes. Um, so I, I will say some of my patients have had multiple concussions, probably, you know, half have had more than one. Um, it's never been something that, you know, I've, I've kind of suspected or it's been, um, it's kind of been on my radar. Uh, but I know, yeah, some, you know, some athletes, especially, you know, in the high contact sports, this is certainly an issue. How many, I'm just curious to know about the concussion history. So what is the typical concussion history of your, of your population? Cause you said your population is women 20 to 45. Yeah. So I'm wondering what type of traumatic brain injury as well. So I have clients who have had, you know, this is their first and a lot of clients who say, I think I had another one. I don't think this was my first one. Some who were athletes, um, you know, even when they were younger, when they were in their early teens, um, all the way to, you know, they've had 10 concussions. Um, and oftentimes it's all different um, causes. It could be a motor vehicle accident and a slip and fall and a sports injury and a fluke. You know, I, I've had a couple, you know, they, they have banged their head on the, the marble countertop. Um, so it could be, it could be anything. So it, it really does vary. Um, certainly those who have had multiple, it's not uncommon to hear, okay, so my first one I recovered, but this one's different. Or, you know, maybe it's number three. And this one I I, I haven't been able to recover like I did the first two times. Um, and yes, certainly some, 
you know, I think I might've had one before, but um, it wasn't, you know, diagnosed properly. And so I'm interested also in, you know, what are the tools and resources you're using for billing for cognitive communication um, rehabilitation? So I know this is always a touchy uh, topic about billing and uh, for, for cognitive communication, but if you could break down, you know, how do we go about doing this or what should we look out for if we're, if we're billing? Sure. And and so, you know, I am in Canada and things are totally different here. Um, here I am, you know, it's I, I it's private pay and I provide the client with an invoice or, you know, might, might be perceived as like a super bill, I, I think. And then they they um, they send that to their insurer and then they get reimbursed, um, you know, whatever's on their extended benefits. So it's different here. Now, my understanding in the States, and I did work in the States for a few years, not while I was working with concussion clients, um, but the cognition, right? The cognition um, codes were often, there were some denials there. So making sure that we are, it's we're working on cognitive communication. And I think in our field, I, I actually I'd be curious to hear your thoughts too. But I, I, my understanding is that the majority of researchers or, or, or SLPs, um, our focus is cognitive communication. Now, I think there are some who say, well, we can treat cognition in general. Well, how often is cognition impacted, but not communication. And I definitely think we should uh, emphasize the communication, the communication piece as a speech language pathologist. We should be emphasizing the, you know, the, the language, language and cognition. Absolutely. I agree. And um, usually we have so many communication goals that it's not even a thought of just working on cognition. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of my thought as well is everything is revolved around communication. It might be really, really high level communication. Maybe it's persuasive discourse and you're trying to convince someone, you're trying to find the language to convince someone to buy something, maybe your clients in sales, um, but it's still communication. Um, so I think emphasizing that in billing is critical. Um, and, you know, they're the functional impacts. We have a question. So since most of your clientele are 20 to 45 um, age range, does do uh, or do issues with parenting and home social life play a big role in functional goals? Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, when I felt really connected as, you know, a parent and, you know, I have a client who is the same age as me, has the same, you know, a, a son, the same age. And, you know, I, we've set goals of, coming up with an activity for their child. Um, so often, like they're just trying to deal with their symptoms and get through their day that, you know, playing with their child or reading to their child at night or, you know, planning activities. I was talking about this today with a client, planning activities to do with, with, with their child um, is a goal. I mean, Typically, we're trying to, you know, get to a place where we feel like we're not drowning, which is, you know, not uncommon to feel, I think, when you're balancing all these balls. But um, 
setting that goal. And again, slowly working to it. What strategies are we going to use? You know, what time of day are we going to plan the activity? What supports are we going to use? Are we going to have visual supports? Are we going to have, you know, family supports? But incorporating that, I think, is so critical. Um, you know, we know there's a lot of the emotional component that goes with concussion and, you know, whether it's anxiety or depression or irritability and, you know, kids are a lot. <laughs> and I had the conversation um, with a client the other day, you know, she was doing some uh, neuropsych testing and she's in a quiet room for, you know, for hours. And she's like, it was easy. She's like, but that's not my life. My life is my, you know, my four-year-old being like, mom, can you do this with me? Mom, like that's real life. So that's what we have to deal with. Like we, we have to be realistic. Um, and, you know, I think that's also something that's important is, is what, you know, we can give all these recommendations, you know, SLPs, other practitioners, but realistically, like, let's break it down and figure out how to incorporate that. And sometimes I feel like we're doing that, um, you know, in therapy where we take the goals of other practitioners and we figure out how to actually implement those goals, um, whether it's, you know, energy conservation or timing, um, but how to also communicate to those practitioners, like, that's not realistic. You know, you're telling me do this, 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 and this. Like that's not, that's not realistic, realistic. So going back to sort of like the self-advocacy um, piece, but I absolutely, I think the parenting and, and home and social goals are, are imperative. How long do you typically see your, your clientele or when, like when you discharge them, how long from the time that you do your intake to when you discharge? It really varies. Um, I would say that typically, on average, I am involved in return to work. So that could be two months, that could be four months, could be eight months, depending on how the return to work is going or return to school as well. Um, you know, I, it's not atypical for me to see clients, you know, typically it's weekly or bi-weekly. Um, but then to kind of do these sort of maintenance check-ins, I call them check-ins, um, where they'll cut, you know, I'm going to say, all right, see how the next month goes. Email me if something comes up and if we need to set up a session, we will. And they do when often when there are kind of life changes or, um, you know, they have, a, they have, you know, a new, a new promotion or a new job or, or maybe it's even a flare up of symptoms. Um, so I like the idea of having these check-ins, like it's kind of like maintenance therapy, making sure we're, you know, we're doing well. Um, and then they also kind of, they know I'm here if they ever need me and, and, and they do, and then some don't and they're back to it and it's great. Want graduate level semester credits for your speechtherapypd.com courses? They are available now in collaboration with the University of Pacific. And as you know, most of our 750 plus video and audio courses are evidence-based and all are super practical. Subscribe now. I love that. So I'm going to take, we're going to have some time for questions. So if uh, any of our attendees have any questions, feel free free to please put them in the chat box. 
Um, is there anything I'm going to leave with? Is there anything that you would like to really just discuss and think about your journey um, and where you are now? Is there anything that you would like to talk about? Um, I mean, I think I became passionate about this area after seeing, I mean, I can talk about her all day. Sheila McDonald, after I saw her in person and I was so inspired by her, um, you know, she is a researcher and educator, but she's also a clinician who still treats clients. And after that, it was like a two day extensive in-person um, course after that. And I left with, oh my gosh, I have so many things I want to do with all of my clients on Monday. Like I have so many ideas for every single person that kind of started the deeper dive, the, you know, reading through research articles, purchasing additional textbooks, like that really kind of got my interest. And I also mentioned, you know, feeling like it could happen to anyone because it can. And, um, you know, really feeling like I saw myself in, in some other clients and, you know, life is already difficult to manage all of these things. Um, to add this is, you know, I, I, you know, you don't want to see anyone struggle. So I think that combined with, you know, the inspiring Sheila McDonald, that kind of together I be, is really what fueled, you know, my passion in this area. And when you were doing your research, are, were there any special cognitive programs for therapy that you have, you know, that you truly have picked out and that you've utilized in your practice? Any special programs? No, no, not, not, I wouldn't say programs, um, you know, really kind of picking apart the kind of theory behind it and the like I'm always learning about new strategies and I wanted to understand, um, I wanted to understand the theory behind it. And, you know, my undergraduate degree was in psychology and um, I worked in the cognitive science lab in, in um, undergraduate school or in school. So I've always had that I've always found cognition interesting and of course language. So the, those are my two favorite things. Um, there's not really any programs, um, but I think, you know, I just try and soak it up. So if there's any sort of cognitive communication, even if I've, you know, seen the speaker before, um, I will watch it. I listen to podcasts, um, anything in that realm, um, I think is helpful. And I also, you know, I'll also listen to concussion podcasts and, and learning from the perspective of the concussion survivor and their experience and what's missing in the concussion field. Um, but, you know, I kind of mentioned before, sort of feeling like we're back to basics with, with the cognitive piece. And I really do. Um, it's, I'm telling you, it's a lot of strategies, a lot of education, and a lot of role playing. What are the, some of the strategies that you use for your return to work? I mean, with this population, 20 to 45, they're working. They're a working population. Uh -huh. So what are some accommodations or some strategies that you specifically work for the you know return to work population? Yeah. So the accommodations um, are certainly important. And they're not 
clear cut like school accommodations. You know, we're not asking for more time to complete an assignment or doing it necessarily in a quiet room, but we can now work from home is a little bit different. A lot of my clients are still able to work from home and that is sort of viewed as an accommodation. Um, maybe it's the, where their desk is, you know, a concern is is going back to work with this kind of flexible desks and not knowing where you are. You could be in a place where high traffic near the bathroom or the front door or think so, you know, requesting to be in a certain area. Again, you know, we're going to we're going to work with OT on this. Um, but we made a request recently. A client was going back and prior to she was managing lots of different projects and um it was a lot to be managing all these different projects and variables and people. And so we requested, and they were gracious enough to, to, to give this to her, was to focus on one larger project. That way she didn't have to have, there were so many things she had to keep track of. Um, and the, you know, the attention and memory was still a little bit of an issue. Um, but that's something that, you know, kind of really depends on the, on the workplace. Um, but I have also, you know, spoken with supervisors and provided a list and the rationale for these are the reason this is what we, um, would, would, that would help her, um, Again, it really depends on the workplace. And there are some things like you can't take distractions out of every, um, out of every workplace, right? So what's, what can we, what can we work around? Like maybe we just need, you know, there's certainly extra breaks. Um, but the reality of some of, you know, had someone who was in a, uh, a veterinary hospital and it's noisy and they're, dogs and, um, you know, beeping and colleagues next to you, and you cannot change that necessarily. So we have to practice that, build up that to get back to work successfully. Um, I went on a tangent there. No, that was good. I mean, any insight into what your population, you know, uh, returning to work and knowing the difference between school, returning to school and returning to work is very helpful. Um, I was going to say you talked about that working in cognitive psych. And I was wondering, could you give any recommendations for aspiring uh, uh, speech pathologists or graduate students or clinical fellows and giving them some insight into how to get into specializing in this area of concussion and brain injury? Is there anything that you recommend that they do, you know, as a clinical fellow or um, even, you know, even speech pathologists that need to gain more insight into cognitive communication? Right. Um, well, I mean, I'm kind of being a dead horse here, but Sheila McDonald has her cognitive communication course online now that's available. Um, everything is pre-recorded and, um, it's, I think, gosh, I don't know, 25 to 30 hours of cognitive communication, which is a real deep dive. And that's what I felt like, you know, I don't know how it is currently in grad school, but for me, we, we learned a little bit about it. And I did actually even attend a concussion summit when I was in graduate school. Um, 
but we didn't get into what are the strategies? Like, what do you actually do with people? Um, and so for me, I really started reading, like, who are the researchers in our field? Um, Solberg and Turkstra and Limoncello and Mullenbrook and uh, Topher and all of these. I started reading their papers and um, I did think of one program. Okay. I did think of one program that I purchased that I haven't used verbatim, um, but it's the TBI Connect out of the University of Sydney. Um, and I think this was a, it's a, it's a communication, um, a social communication partner training. Um, and so this is like a 10 week program um, that is specific to traumatic brain injury um, and social communication. Um, again, like I use pieces of it. I haven't used this, you know, I followed it strictly. Um, but they also have a YouTube, um, that's freely accessible and has some videos. If you're looking for social communication videos, that might be a good place to go. They're free and, um, you can access them. You don't need to purchase the, um, TBI connect, but that's something that has, is also a piece of, um, maybe more so with moderate and, and severe traumatic brain injury, but still, um, it, it's still, we still incorporate that. And we still, I still provide lists of strategies of how, how your communication partner, your spouse, or your family member can support your communication skills. Um, so that's something that I think is, is helpful. We have a, we have a, you are answering some of this of just any helpful apps or resources to help clients with executive functioning issues, as well as they wanted to know about um, any of the, the researchers that you were talking about, how to actually um, spell their names and to, um, to contact them, how to research who you're talking. Yeah. Okay. So talking. Sheila McDonald, I believe is M-A-C, Donald. Um, and... In terms of apps or resources for, for executive functioning skills, um, there's so many out there, right? And it is actually quite overwhelming to try and figure out what is the best, what is the best app? Um, and so, I mean, I have a list, uh, and I, I think OTs do this as well, where um, they kind of can go into a deeper dive of the, of the kind of ext the external aids, um, and, and using the, and using technology, I wouldn't say that there's one that I always recommend. I mean, other than like the calendar app on their phone. Um, but you know, this, the metacognitive, the metacognitive piece is something that's going to keep coming up. Um, and that is a strategy that, you know, we're always thinking about whatever sort of you know, executive functioning issue, we are incorporating kind of self-regulation and metacognition into that. Um, resources, um, you know, there's a book that I really like by, um, uh, by Kennedy um, called the uh, college, it's like college students and executive functioning, um, Mary Kennedy, uh, which I really like. Uh, yeah, I can't say that there's really specific. I think early on when I started learning about cognitive communication, um, two resources that I found online were the um, 
was the one from uh, the U.S. Veterans, the mild the the TBI toolkit toolkit, which was available online for free, um, as well as the Cog Smart, which is out of the University of San Diego, I believe, and also is might have been the U.S. Veterans, but those were two PDFs available free online that had some ideas as well. And um, we also, um, I just completed a, a four-hour deeper dive into return to learning after sports concussions. And so that's available at speechtherapypd.com. And um, if you look at, if you uh, look at my, my references, I have all of the researchers that you have talked about today. And I've also, <clears throat> excuse me, I've also um, provided those assessments um, that you have um, also talked about today. So, um, or in more, and, and really it was talking about return to learning. Um, so you talked about return to work, but I was talking about return to learning and the accommodations that we need for our student athletes in the school system. And so that's another resource that, um, that you all can uh, definitely um, look at, look into. So I just want to thank you so much, Danielle Hyde, for coming on on the Neuro Podcast. Um, I truly appreciate your your research, your education, and expertise that you provided about tools and resources for cognitive communication interventions after a concussion. So thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. Thank you all so much. And uh, Danielle, can you please let them know how to find you as well in your email? Sure. So as Tabia has mentioned, neuro at neuro.connections, um, you can reach me on Instagram or you can send me an email directly at um, danielle at neuroconnections.ca. And thank you all so much. Uh, you're welcome. They were saying thank you both. Um, so yes, you're welcome. So it's at neuro.connections. You can connect with Danielle um, and she has her own private practice. She's the co-owner of Neural Connections. Her email is danielle at neuralconnections.ca. Yep. So we're just getting that information to everyone. Thank you so much. And if you have any questions from myself, you can um, email me as well at info at headtospeech.org. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand, and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today.